Hi everyone, welcome back to What's the Crime? I'm Gráinne. And I'm Gemma. And coming again from afar. (laughs) (laughs) Gemma is coming in again um, remotely. She is in Tipperary, so she is not with me in jail. But not to worry because you are, we can hear you well enough, I think, again. (laughs) Um, So this week I am going to tell you the story of Anita Kabe. So this story is based in um, Western Australia um, and just as a little uh, warning for listeners, it is quite a graphic story um, so it might not be suitable for everybody. Uh, So to get straight to it. Blacktown is an outer western Sydney suburb in the state of New South Wales, Australia. So nowadays it's home to around 50,000 people and in the 1980s that population consisted mainly of like working class families and unemployed young people. So it's located about 40 kilometres west of Sydney and at the time the crime rate was escalating with drug use and theft but major crimes were not really commonplace. Gary and Grace Lynch had no worries about their two daughters getting involved in anything untoward. So they had two daughters, Anita, who was 25, and Catherine, who was 20. They were both very responsible, very good-natured. Gary, their father, had a long career as a graphic artist in the Air Force and Grace was a nursing sister. So Anita had decided to follow in her mother's footsteps and become a nurse. Um, She was described as a people person. She loved her job. She was noticeably beautiful. And she had actually been crowned Miss Western Suburbs in 1979, um, which is like a, a beauty pageant. She did have opportunities as a model because of this, but, you know, nursing was her passion and she decided to stick to that. Her father, Gary, described her as, quote, the quintessence of dignity, unquote. So working at Sydney Hospital is where she met her husband, John Cobby. John was also a nurse and the pair married in 1982. So they travelled around Europe, but things actually began to break down for the couple and they decided to separate So she decided to move back in with her parents. So they were quite still good friends and they were kind of in talks about um, reconciliation. But for the time being, they kind of decided that they would um, spend some time apart. On Sunday, February 2nd, 1986, uh, she had just finished a day shift on a surgical ward at Sydney Hospital and she was going for dinner with two of her colleagues and friends, Lynn Bradshaw and Elaine Bra in Redfern. So they got changed out of their uniform. They decided to go to a Lebanese restaurant. They stopped off at an off-license, got some wine. They had a lovely night chatting away and laughing. It wasn't like a super late night because um, they had just done a shift. They were tired and um, they ended the night at around 10 p.m. So they said goodbye to Elaine and then Anita got a lift with Lynn to the train station. So she got a train back to Blacktown where she lived and normally when she arrived she would call her father from there to come and pick her up. Now back in those days there wasn't any mobile phones so she used a payphone. But this night um, she's seen the payphone was out of order and unfortunately there was no taxis in the taxi rank so she decides that she will walk. 
So it's about a two kilometer journey to her family home. So that would probably take her about half an hour. Um, and she knows the area relatively well. She's not concerned or anything like that. Okay. At around midnight, Gary Lynch, her dad, is still up. So he's waiting for her. So obviously she normally calls him um, and he's sort of wondering maybe she decided to, if she decided to stay with a friend, you know, but if so, why hadn't she called to let them know? The next morning when her mother, Grace, checked her bedroom, Anita hadn't come home. So they oh kind God, of, I don't like the sound I know, of it. I know. They kind of assume that she must have stayed with a friend and they're still waiting for her to call them. Um, she was due to start uh, a shift at Sydney Hospital that afternoon. She was a very reliable, um, hardly ever late, and she would always call ahead if she was or if anything came up. So when she didn't show up to her shift, um, uh, they called home and they realised she wasn't home either. Alarm bells started to go off. So her parents were obviously worried at this stage because they knew that she first of all they were like she would have called and if she had stayed somewhere else she would have went to work so they go to report it to the police what they don't know is at approximately 10 p.m the night before along Anita's route home a 13 year old girl and her brother are at home when they hear screams outside their house They run outside and they can see a cream Aston Martin and two men dragging a screaming woman into the car. So the boy runs after the car, but they already have the woman in and they speed off. Their older brother, Paul McGaughy, arrives home a few minutes later and they run to tell him what happened. So they had already called the police at this point, the the two younger ones. Um, Oh my God, they're quick on the ball. And even to have the... Even to have the nerve to run after the car as if, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's clearly more than one man um, as a young boy. So they've already called the police. So the older brother gets back into his car and he tr- he just starts to drive around and see if he can find the car that his siblings described to him. So he drove around a few locations. He drove down a secluded spot, which is like a lover's lane. It was called Rain Road. So he steps outside. He has a spotlight, like a flashlight, which he shines around and he doesn't see anyone. And he sort of um, just, there's just nothing there. He um, drives home back to his siblings. And the next morning is when the police um, receive the missing person report for Anita Copy. That morning at around 11am, a farmer, John Rain, notices his cows crowding around something inquisitively in his paddock. And he is horrified to discover a human body. So on arrival to the scene, detectives arrive and they could tell that this woman had been tortured. (gasps) She was violently beaten, she was brutally raped and she was almost decapitated. She had not a stitch of clothing on or anything at all with her that could identify her apart from a wedding ring on her left hand. So the um, police that took Gary Lynch's missing persons report, he sort of hears that a female body has been discovered. He rushes to the scene with Anita's photograph to approach the detectives. And when they see the photograph, they have no doubt that this unidentified body is Anita Cobby. So... 
Oh my God. I know. Armed with the photograph, they decide to go to Anita's house, her parents' house in Blacktown. Uh, their daughter, their other daughter, Catherine, is there and she's able to identify that the ring did belong to Anita. So now they have to formally identify her. Um, oh Gary's or Her father, Gary, um, follows the police to the morgue to identify his daughter. On seeing his beautiful daughter lying bruised and broken in the morgue, his legs buckled underneath him and the detectives had to hold him upright. He composed himself and said, I wish I could say it was somebody else's daughter, but then they would have to go through this too. I watched um, so I watched a documentary and her parents are literally like, you, they just seem like the most genuine, lovely people and they're so heartbroken. Like I watched this from years later and... They still talk about how she was so graceful and she just, like, you can't imagine what they went through. And still to be, you know, to say, like, I wish it was someone else's daughter, but I also don't because then they'd have to go through what we went through. Like, it's just so sad. Um, so sad. Her husband, uh, Anita's husband, was at a restaurant with his father and a friend when he learned um, of his wife's disappearance. So he... Uh, drove to another Sydney suburb the next day. You know, he's he's looking for her. He doesn't know at this point that she is dead. Um, so he visits, for, he goes to his friends that she might have been visiting. He's looking for her. And while driving, he heard on the radio that a body had been found in... Oh, Las my Valley. God. So he stopped at a payphone and called his parents, who were too distraught to speak. And later that afternoon, he also confirmed that the ring found on the body was his wife's distinctive Russian-style wedding ring. And he's absolutely devastated. So detectives questioned those closest to the victim. Of course, her husband, John. Um, you know, he's not only her husband, they're not together. Um, medical examiner Dr. Joseph Maluf conducted the autopsy. But after reviewing the report, investigators believe that more than one person was involved in the horrific murder, and so they ruled out John as a suspect. Um, a team of local and homicide detectives set up an investigation to find out what happened, and obviously who was responsible for her death. They were to look at anybody in the area that had any uh, sexual violent past convictions, taxi drivers, witnesses, anything that could lead them to the truth of what happened. So when they came across the report of the woman being dragged into the sedan at around 9.50pm, the McGaughys are confident that it was Anita. You know, the, the, the siblings that seen the woman being dragged in, they are really sure yeah. it's Anita. So this led the detectives to the conclusion that she must have decided to walk home. When the media get hold of some of the grisly details about Anita's murder, the public are angered. So on February 6th, the public learn the details of her murder. So it's it's very graphic. Um, a morning radio host, John Laws, actually read a leaked copy of the autopsy report live on air. And her, her comment was extremely aggressive. So she, um, the... The medical examiner actually testified that she had been sexually assaulted anally, orally, and vaginally. He found multiple bruising on her head and body inflicted before death. Some of her head injuries were caused by feet and fists. She had been kicked and punched numerous times. 
She had one bruise caused by a blow of considerable force around the right eye. She had abrasions to her back, legs, breast, shoulders, both legs and thighs, plus more minor contusions to both upper arms. Um, She had... uh, two fingers on her right hand were smashed from defending herself um, and the other fingers were nearly severed from um, the axe or knife that had sliced her throat. She had three major and three minor lacerations to her neck um, and most of the structures and muscles on the right side of her neck and trachea were severed. It was estimated that it took her at least two minutes to die. So, you know, that's very graphic and of course here in that people wanted to find who was responsible because this was such a horrific attack um so detectives um obviously under pressure to find who done this and first of all get them off the street um yeah they reenacted her movements on the night of her murder so a police constable debbie wallace who um was dressed similarly to what she was wearing. She um, rode the 9.12pm train from Central Railway Station to Blacktown. So this is all being filmed to sort of, you know, jog people's memories. She was 25 Mm -hmm. at the time. She was similar in size to Anita. And it didn't really prompt, or sorry, it did prompt a lot of calls, but no breakthrough um, came out of it. So um, the Magahes gave the police a description of the vehicle, a light-coloured early model Holden Kingswood sedan, which was in poor condition with patchy paintwork. Under hypnosis, one of them recalled the car's licence plate as well, apparently. Um, okay. And police traced the plates and discovered the vehicle was stolen. Then, this is where they get their big break. An informant contacts the investigative team and informs them that a Holden sedan that was stolen and similar to the one described in the abduction was stolen by a group of young men. So, five young men, each with troubled lives and a string of criminal convictions are named. So the police start searching for John Travers, 18, considered the gang leader, had a long history of violent attacks and assaults and animal cruelty, Michael Murdoch, also 18, idolised Travers, and three brothers, Les, Michael and Gary Murphy, after um, they discovered that some of them had a history of violence and that Travers had a reputation for carrying a knife. This is so weird. John Travers, the one I said first, 18, was actually known to buy or steal sheep, have sexual intercourse with the sheep, slit its throat and then roast it on a spit. Oh my God. That, I can't even, I can't comprehend any of I know. So, <sighs> the informant tells detectives that the stolen car has very distinctive chrome wheels, and they also believe that the car has been dumped and burned. So, investigators decide to organise a series of raids to question the men, and they find the distinctive chrome wheels on Les Murphy's car. So, they'd taken the wheels and put them on their car. They also okay. found a bloodied knife in John Travers' home, to which he explains his animal blood. When he's questioned, the investigators start to believe that they have their man simply by his terminology and his behaviour. He says things like, I didn't slit that slut's throat. You know, like, talking like that about a murder victim, if you, you know, it's just so... They were all arrested on car theft and they claim they were all at home um, watching TV on the night of Anita's murder. 
Murdoch and Les Murphy were released on bail, but they are placed under 24-hour surveillance and Travis Travers was held in custody. So Murdoch and the brothers try and come up with a plan to help Travers, like they're arranging fake passports. The police are watching them all that this is happening. They're arranging fake passports and the police are like, it's almost they're almost confirmed that they've done something really wrong because they're not going to be organising all of this over a stolen car. Yeah. From the station, Travers asks one of the policemen to call up a female acquaintance of his to bring him some cigarettes. So the sergeant takes this woman's number, but he actually calls her and he asks, could he meet her in private first? So we never actually find out who this woman is, her relationship to Travers, how they know each other. All we know is that she comes to be known as Miss X. So she is obviously a protected witness. Okay. all we kind of know is that she is she's quite scared of Travis. So the sergeant secretly meets with her to have a conversation about Travers and his associates and she sort of enlightens him about Travers's like weird, disturbed behaviour, his attitude towards women, and she says that she it wouldn't surprise her if he was involved. So I don't know if she's like an actual friend of his or she could be somebody that like maybe is his relation and, and you know, just doesn't can't turn her back on him or something I don't, I'm not sure but anyway she agrees to get cigarettes to Travers and try and see what information she can get out of him and report back to the sergeant so after she meets with him she is visibly shaken and she is basically carried to the sergeant office she um, form, informs them that the five boys were all involved in Anita's murder um, and she agrees to write out a statement on paper. So this essentially means that it's her word against all of theirs. So they're like, look, you know, will you go back and wear a wire? And surprisingly, she agrees. Like they sort of just throw it out there and they don't know if she'll do it because she's fully terrified. But yeah. she, she does agree to do it. Um, so I listened to this conversation online. Um, I decided not to include it in the episode because it's so hard to hear what they're saying. Like, I don't think you could make it out without subtitles. So when I watched it, it was really the subtitles that I could understand what he was saying. Okay. You couldn't really understand it if you just heard it. So I'll yeah. briefly explain how their conversation went. Travers, we were all drunk and she fucking seen all of us. Miss X, she saw your faces. Travers, yeah, and she got all our names. Someone had to do it. Miss X, the others said you had to do it. Travers, and I said it's got to be done And they said, go on, Travi, do your thing, Miss X. But that's not your thing, is it, John? You haven't done that sort of thing before, have you, John? Travers, no. Miss X, truthfully? Travers, no. Miss X, so that's the first? Travers, yeah. And he laughs. Miss X, don't laugh, John, it's not funny. Travers, they weren't going to do it, so someone had to. Miss X, and the rotten bastards all fucked off on you. Travers, no one wants to know me now, Miss X. I do, John. I still love you. So there they had it. They had their confession and they had him implicating everybody, um, but that he sort of, he was the one that actually killed her. Oh my God. In a series of nighttime raids, they snare Michael Murdoch and Les Murphy, but the other two brothers are nowhere to be found. So they're taken down to the station. They're all heavily interrogated and they crack they admit they all admit what they had done, but they're you know they're claiming that Travers had been the one to 
to cut her throat. Travers actually killed her. So, to explain what they've done, what happened, um, on the night of her murder, they're all drinking in a pub on the other side of town, which is about 40 kilometres away. They decide that they'll leave the pub and go on a search to buy drugs. So they hop into a stolen car, but don't even have enough money between them to fill the almost empty tank. So they decide that they are going to have to rob somebody. But worse again, they decide that's not enough for their night's entertainment, that rape is also on the carts. So they drive around, um, they spot Anita on her walk home, like by herself, like she's just, it's just, she's in the wrong place. Oh, she's so innocent. Like, And they decide she'll be their target. I know. And they pull up beside her to jump out, grab her, and kicking and screaming, she's dragged into the car. This is literally the, the assault start as the minute she's in the car. She's stripped of her clothing immediately in the back of the car. She's punched. They break her nose. They actually pull up to a petrol station. Why she's still in the car, um, she's held at knife point in the back. They lay her down on the floor behind the seats, tell her to be quiet, took the money out of her purse, paid for the petrol, and then, like, so, you know, it's not like, it's not like they're, like, don't, the, the oh people are God, there. Oh, my God, so brazen about it. I know. And then they drive down to Reen Road to carry out the rest of their assault. So Reen Road is like a quiet, pearly lit area that the boys know relatively well. So remember how I said earlier that Paul McGahey drove down Reen Road, which is like a lover's lane. Mm-hmm. He shone a spotlight down there. They were there. They actually had Anita there at the time and they hid in the grass. So it was really long grass and they hid holding her down. And he actually oh seen um, a holding sedan, but he's like, oh, I don't think that's the same one. So that's when he leaves to go home and check on his siblings. And then after that, they're all just pretty much free to violate and torture her. She had been, at that point, already raped by multiple men in the car. They drag her through barbed wire rather than even throw her over it or, you know. She was subjected to, honestly, what can only be described as pure torture by all of the men. And when they finish their attack then they're like oh she might be able to identify us you know they were all you know none of them are covering their faces they were using their names um so travers jumps on her back holds her head up and severs her throat oh, i don't want to, i can't listen um almost decapitating her in the process so it is just like the end of the most brutal end to the most brutal attack they uh burn her clothes in an attempt to get rid of the evidence um, but unbeknownst to them, a neighbour was peering over the fence. Then they drive off in the stolen car and abandon it, burnt out in bushland. So remember I was saying that the neighbour, there was someone, an informant that is like, I seen a, sto- I, a car that is sort of like the stolen car and I, I think there's five men sort of attached to this. Um, yeah. Travers did take um, his knife out with him so people are arguing that it was premeditated murder like the murder was a part of their plan from the beginning um he did however get rid of the knife and it was never found um on the 24th of february one of the detectives contact gary and grace lynch which is any or any of his parents to inform them that they have arrested three men responsible for any murder and they're on the hunt for two more um, and in that documentary, like I remember Gary, who's her father, was just like he was just in shock that it was five men, like five monsters, 
attacking I know, his like, daughter. Like, how people, do you even? Uh, how can they all be that evil? How can I know. so many people be so evil? How can so and be so evil and and keep keep going with the attack? Like it's just so awful. And how hard, like how you could never come to terms with that. You know, her father, like no. it's just the worst, it's the worst news you could get. The following day, the three men are brought to the scene of the crime and they recount in minute detail what occurred and how she was murdered. Word got out to the media via radio stations that three men were arrested for Anita's murder. So when they get back to the police station, there are crowds of people. Like, these people are out for blood. It is mob mentality. They have signs. They have nooses hanging off buildings. They're shaking the car. Like, I think from how brutal the attack was and how it had been leaked, how she died, you can imagine people are so angry. Yeah. On February 26th, after a series of tip-offs from members of the public, thankfully the two other Murphy brothers, Gary and Michael, were apprehended. So now all five men are in custody and they're charged with the abduction and the murder of Anita Cabe. So it's not until five months later that the full committal hearing is carried out. The trial starts on March 24th, 1987, lasts 12 weeks. Several people testified, um, including um, the medical examiner, Anita's father. All five men plead um, not guilty, even though they'd all made admissions about what they'd done. Like, just seriously. Um, So... Uh, Maxine Greensmith, which was a neighbour of Travers, she's the one that noticed what, you know them in the backyard. So she told the court that she'd noticed a funny smelling fire burning in the man's backyard and saw the five accused standing around the fire, drinking beer and talking loudly. So the, that's when they later told the police that they'd burned her clothing and her, her bag and stuff that night. And another infuriating thing is how they sort of were acting in the courtroom. Like there was no remorse, there was no... They were nearly like chatting and like, you know, laughing. There was no, no sadness with them. And you can imagine how, how angry and that must have been for everybody else there. Yeah. But when Miss X enters the courtroom to give evidence, Travers is absolutely furious. He actually leaps out of his seat and tries to lunge for her before he's contained by the guards. So he's clearly taken by surprise and so angry. On June 10th, 1987, the jury found all five men guilty and they were ultimately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, Good. Yes, good. The judge concluded the circumstances of these prisoners and the circumstances of the murder of Anita Lorraine Cobby prompt me to recommend that the official files of each prisoner should be clearly marked never to be released. John Cobby, um, Anita's husband, he did not attend the trial. He was consumed with grief. He relocated to the US the day after his wife's funeral. But um, he couldn't really cope. He became heavily addicted to drugs. And then after a minor accident, he decided to sober up. He did move back to Australia in 1987, changed his last name to avoid publicity and maintain some privacy, remarried and um, had two children. The Lynches, um, Anita's parents, they created the Anita Cobby Nursing Scholarship to aid nurses in continuing their professional training. And her lovely father, who was just so lovely, um, he died in 2008 at the age of 90, followed by his wife in 2013 at the age of 88. 
finally reunited with their daughter. Miss X, um, she received numerous death threats from the public and went into the witness protection program. So I don't know if that means like the public, like I assume that's like, you know, associates of Travers because the public are clearly going to be in her support or I don't know, maybe it was something to do with the fact that she was his relative or something. I don't know. Um, But no one knows who she is anyway. Obviously, I'm sure people close to the case know, but um, it's not known who she is. Uh, in 2019, one of the men um, jailed for life over her murder was seen in public for the first time in three decades. Um, a thin-framed Gary Murphy, 61, emerged from a secure wing at Sydney's Prince of Wales Hospital in handcuffs and being pushed in a wheelchair by um, a corrective services officer. So there's like media there, they're asking, you know, journalists are asking him if he's sorry, if he had anything to say to Miss Cobby's family, and he stays silent. Um, he was being transferred back to Long Bay Jail after spending a few weeks at the hospital because he was recovering from injuries sustained when he was attacked by several men in a shower block. Uh, Michael Murphy uh, died in jail from cancer age 66 in February 2019 and the other surviving killers are in various prisons in New South Wales, where they belong. Yeah, um, where they belong to rot. So, like, this was such a, a grisly, horrible killing. It outraged the entire nation, and it's still considered one of the most vicious crimes in Australian history. And, you know, Anita Kabe is remembered for being such a beautiful person with, you know, such a beautiful family that loved and cared for her. And she had a career where she really, really cared for people. And it was just so, so brutally taken away by those five monsters. And just literally a a chance encounter. A chance encounter. It's so frightening. It's like, it's, it's like the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, guys, we know that that episode was uh, quite a difficult listen at times um, and we do appreciate all of our listeners. And um, this is actually the last episode on series two of What's the Crime? Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. And um, we're just so grateful for all of the support. It's actually overwhelming how many people listen and enjoy our episodes and enjoy our podcast. It really is. So yeah, um, we will let you know via our Instagram page when we will be back for season three. But for now, we're just going to enjoy the new year. Happy New Year and thanks so much. Thanks, guys. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.